0: since Xi Jinping came to power, what we've really seen is an explosion in these long-arm policing operations.
1: Last fall, investigations by the non-profit Safeguard Defenders revealed that there were over 100 secret overseas Chinese police stations in at least 53 countries around the world. Last April, the DOJ announced two arrests in connection with one such station in New York. Now you have
0: a regime that is openly writing down, that is legitimate, to engage in kidnapping to bring people back.
1: In this episode, Safeguard Defenders Campaign Director Laura Harth breaks down how these Chinese overseas outposts control the Chinese diaspora and repatriate people illegally. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Jekielek. Laura Harth, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders.
0: Thanks for having me, Jan.
1: It's been a few years since you've been on the show, and you have been doing some amazing work. Uh, you broke the story. Your organization broke the story of the existence of these what they call Chinese police stations in all sorts of countries around the world. Most recently, in the fall of 2022, we learned of one such setup in Manhattan Chinatown. So I want to start there because that's that's what people will remember, right? And so what just give me the whole picture of the reality what are these things why are they there so safeguard
0: defenders we came across the existence of these so-called overseas police service stations which is a setup between public security authorities in China in cooperation with United Front linked groups around the world right because what we uncovered was well over 100 such stations in um, at least 53 countries around the world so this is a global endeavor. Now, we came across them because we had been tracking the CCP's illegal repatriation methods, right? So the illegal long-arm policing operations carried out by authorities from China, by CCP agents around the world to coerce people back to China, to bring people back to China against their will. And so the stations obviously played at least some role in this.
1: No, absolutely. And I'll just mention for the benefit of our audience the United Front, of course, are the Chinese Communist Party's overseas influence operations, various different groups, like often student groups and so forth, uh, that are uh, kind of operating here, working hand in hand with authorities from China. So, why do these things exist? I mean, you have the most, by far, the most comprehensive reporting. So, break it down for me. So what
0: happened is, starting in 2016, or maybe going back a bit further, basically since Xi Jinping came to power, what we've really seen is an explosion, if you will, in these uh, long-arm policing operations by the Chinese authorities, by the Chinese Communist Party around the world. And so we've been looking at the techniques, at the you know, regulations that, and policies they've described to do this back in China. And what we see then in 2016 is we see local provincial or city authorities in China kind of mimicking, looking at those national guidelines, national regulations and saying, hey, we can do this as well. You know, let's demonstrate how good we are. And so they start connecting actively with these United Front linked groups around the world. I mean, they had been connected, but they kind of start formalizing these bonds um, with those groups to use those existing networks of individuals and associations around the world to be better able to kind of execute if you will some of these operations and i think one part of what they were doing something that you know the chinese authorities have not denied is provide so-called consular services administrative services which you know renewing your passport renewing your driver's licenses now it's very important to point out that this in and of itself is already illegal. It may not necessarily be a criminal offense, but under international law, this is illegal. This is a violation of the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. You can't just come in and set up your consular outposts wherever you want without the consent of the host government. So China had already been doing this. They've not been denying that they've been doing this. They've even been revendicating the fact that they've been doing this. But on top of that, What obviously concerned us at Safeguard Defenders was seeing that the central authority in kind of coordinating Mm -hmm. all those different services that they were offering were the public security authorities of these four specific locations in China. And we were able to tie, again, all exclusively on the basis of open source evidence, to tie those operations, to tie some of those stations directly to so-called persuasion to return operations. Now, a persuasion to return operation is the preferred method of the PRC authorities. And again, this has been described officially in a written legal interpretation in 2018. It is their preferred method to go after targets abroad and coerce them to go back to China. So it's
1: it's persuasion, like, Heavy persuasion, right? yes, it sounds very yeah. nice. It yeah. sounds
0: very, you know it, it sounds like it it's a gentle talk and invite. Um, obviously it is not. Uh, it starts usually with threats and harassment or even worse, punishment of family members back home, kind of pushing those family members and convincing their relatives overseas to either you know be silent, stop their activism, maybe or convince them to, to come back. And I think, for example, the Uyghur communities overseas, diasporas, have been talking about this a lot. Right, A lot of them weren't able to talk to their family members for years. And then suddenly, maybe because they've spoken publicly, um, you know, they suddenly get a phone call from a family member or from a public security agent using their family member's phone uh, to come back. So we kind of know that tactic. But others are you know, threats and harassment, Or worse, delivered directly to the target overseas. And that's obviously something where we've seen these police stations, so called police stations, active in, both on the basis of that open source evidence, which included a video of such an operation taking place in Spain, in Madrid. Um, So, where you had the people in Madrid, Spain, with the suspect, the target uh, for repatriation, in direct video. meeting with the public security authorities back home in China, and who also had a family member of that target overseas with them. So you kind of saw it play out on video, and such a station was involved. And then obviously we've seen the indictment coming out here in spring in New York against two people linked to the so-called Chinese overseas police station in New York, which again uh, alleges that these people were engaged in, in, you know, surveillance, harassment, threats um, against an individual on American soil at the behest of Chinese authorities. So those are the kind of things that that we've seen and that are obviously of um, grave concern, both for the human rights and freedoms of the people that are involved, of the targets, but also just in terms of the violation, like the brazen violation of territorial sovereignty and judicial sovereignty that we're seeing in these cases.
1: So do you think, you know, they came in, they would just establish themselves offering these consular or just, you know, helpful services so the US authorities would just play a blind eye, just give a blind eye to it, and then if they would just kind of ramp up the 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 level of, of activities or that they're doing? Like how do these things even get established in the first place?
0: So I, I wouldn't want to say that anyone turned a blind eye. I mean, in some countries, obviously, we've seen, such as South Africa, where there was some kind of cooperation with local authorities, some kind of consent to do this. It's been our understanding in the vast majority of all cases, um, mainly democracies, where these stations were set up, that this was done without the consent of the host governments, right? And, and, and again, that's exactly where that violation of the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations um, comes in you know it's a bit of a difficult question what comes first right we've seen them doing a series of things and often under the guise of offering services which objectively you know if it were not in violation of international law objectively one can understand is helpful to the community members right what i think is of concern is the fact that you're running these kind of services not through the traditional channels um, but through groups that are linked to the CCP's influence agencies that are linked to the United Front. And we all know that the United Front work is not just about trying to influence people. It's not just about trying to set a narrative that is you know, the one preferred by the Chinese Communist Party. It's also about cracking down, about dividing, silencing, blunting critics of that same narrative. Mm-hmm. Right? So when you are running your so-called consular services or court proceedings or whatever, through these networks, obviously you're giving them an enormous amount of control over the communities in which you know, they are residing, in which they are performing these services. You give them access to a whole lot of data on who is there because you are the ones that they have to come through. Um,
1: and legitimacy too, right? Legiti- exactly, yeah. that's yeah. the
0: thing, legitimacy. Like you're, you're establishing these people as effectively leaders in the community who, if you'll need your passport renewed, you'll have to go through, so maybe you better behave. And I think that's why we called the, the second, you know, the follow-up report, um, which uncovered more stations in December last year, patrol and persuade, it's a bit, you know, but to really give that sense of ultimately what this is about, this is about establishing control over the communities, of course, you know you have those people that are actively cooperating with them, collaborating even. But I think there's also a very wide group of, of you know, victims that are not necessarily only the people that are being actively threatened, harassed, um, you know, maybe returned to China, but also that middle group that just really doesn't have anywhere to go, right? And I think so. Finding a way to engage them and say, hey you are now in the free world and you should be able to enjoy that and like what are your concerns how can we make sure that you know we can we can kind of get the hold that the ccp tries to have on you even overseas um how can, can we stop that knowing very well that obviously the ccp's preferred arm is weapon is is using family members back home so it's it's a very difficult situation uh for a lot of those people
1: I want to go back to that video from Spain that you mentioned earlier. and This is a situation where the person that's in Spain, the Chinese national, is acutely aware, if I'm not mistaken, of the fact that the people on the other side, from the state security, have one of their family members.
0: So basically, what you see is you have the target overseas who was someone accused, again, you know, a lot of these people, you know, this, people, people know this very well. Um, you know, there's always a lot of accusations against people that are being sought overseas. And um, this is not to say that among all those people, among those thousands of people that are being returned, that there is not someone that may, you know, effectively be a criminal or have committed um, criminal offences. But it's important to remember that these operations are clandestine under international law, under national laws. And these are all just people that are accused, right? They haven't been tried in a court of law, just as a bit of background. But so this person was accused of environmental pollution. Basically, what we believe happened is the people tied to one of these stations in Madrid were tasked by public security authorities back in China to kind of find that person. You know, They must have known he was in in Spain. Maybe they had learned it from the family member uh, back in China. Bring him in, so they're bringing him in to a location. Just to be clear, these police stations are not classic police stations, right? They could be private residences, you know, office buildings, and so on. But anyway, they bring this person in, and so we have the, you know, individuals linked to the station in Madrid sitting next to the suspect, um, and they are in a video meeting with public security authorities back in China, who obviously identified themselves as being from the public security. And this family member who has like a nameplate, which doesn't even say the name, but you know, relative or family member in front of them. So the setup was very clear. I think you know, for the suspect or the target overseas, it couldn't have been clearer what was happening here. And it was actually a successful operation. So that person voluntarily returned to China following these these activities. Um, and well, it's a classic example of what we know has been happening, it's a classic example of what is described in tons of documents, official documents from the Chinese authorities on the basis of open source evidence, again, exclusively from Chinese authorities, state party media. Um, We managed to tie these um, stations to at least 84 such operations taking place around the world. Only three of them we know exactly where they took place, so one in Serbia, one in Spain, and one in France. Um, there may have been many more. Um, maybe not all of these were as clear-cut as the Spanish one. We don't know. But I would say there's enough evidence to kind of demonstrate, and you know, taking also into account the indictment, obviously that's happened here in New York, there's enough evidence to, to, to say that these are not just innocent consular administrative services being performed.
1: Right. I mean, they're, they're multi-purpose. That's, that's a good exactly, way. I think that's a good way to say it. <laughs> right. Actually,
0: that, that is actually perfect um, because what they basically did and what they describe is they have this multi purpose platform, right? Um, where it's basically the public security authority that can kind of field queries depending on, on what is needed. So, you know, if you need a driver's license, you'll go through the station, it will be sent to the public security, which will then send it down, you know, to the local equivalent of the DMV, you know, if it's a court issue, it will go to the court. So they kind of act. Um, that's the way they describe it, um, at least as this kind of nexus through which to go. But again, you know, it's always the public security authorities having a very clear overview, and I think that tells you a lot as well. Because, um, you know, in what country, you know, would it be the police acting as the central agency for fielding requests on driver's licenses and passport renewals and well, it makes sense if you know the Chinese system, um, or the communist Chinese system, where obviously things such as passports and driver's licenses can indeed be weaponized against you to make sure that you comply.
1: Absolutely fascinating. You know, actually, there was, you, you were, of course, testifying on the on the Hill recently, um, and uh, China Daily decided to uh, uh, bring this issue up, you know, with, uh, and it's, it's always very interesting. Like, I, I actually enjoy reading China daily headlines from time to time, so kind of understand what, what the current obsession is or what the current view needs to be. But so clearly um, you've hit a nerve with this.
0: We've definitely hit a nerve with this. Um, we've seen actually already before, starting in January 2022, when we released our report, Involuntary Returns, uh, which is kind of the precursor to, to police stations um, and which described the methods being used to coerce people back to, to China. Um, we've seen disinformation campaigns against safeguard defenders across platforms, really, and and, and in a way that we believe, you know, try to kind of drown our reporting by putting out, you know, fake reports with the same titles. Um, a lot of content, obviously, a lot of you know insults and, and um, the usual things I'd say against um, Chinese human rights defenders or human rights defenders working on China. Um, but it was interesting to see, again, there was a Global Times during the weekend um, before the hearing on the Hill, and then China Daily came out on the day of the hearing on the Hill. And yeah, I think it's fair to say they're still pretty upset about it. We clearly hit a nerve with that, which you know, for us is a signal to like, keep pushing it. Clearly, there's something here that annoys them. Um, clearly, there's something that's been happening. You know, The responses that governments have given to, to what uh, we reported on clearly, um, does not sit well with them. So I think you know it's it's kind of we're on the right track. We need to keep pushing it. Um, not necessarily police stations, but you know the whole transnational repression, yes. long arm policing angle of it is definitely something they're they're not happy to see uncovered. And if you'll allow me, there's just something obviously these attack pieces are. Well, not nice, they're quite defamatory, frankly speaking, um, but there's something I always find very interesting is that within those pieces, and I don't think at this point they even realize, they keep actually admitting to a whole series of violations that they're continuously doing, starting from you know, when they talk about our director, Peter Dahlin, being put through residential surveillance at a designated location in China back in 2015, I'm like, well, thanks for admitting it, guys, but you know that RSDL, it's been, um, you know, hu- human rights procedures at the UN have been calling on you to abolish this system because it's a grave human rights violation. It's a grave and forced disappearance. It constitutes torture. And you're just writing about it as if it were some beautiful thing. You bring up his forced confession. Guys, forced televised confessions are not an okay thing to do. There's nothing to boast about here, yet here you are attacking us and boasting about your grave human rights violations. Then obviously they go on and say, oh, all these people overseas, they're just volunteers, they're doing consular services. Once again, not okay, guys, that's illegal. So it's kind of almost funny in a way, if you will, the way they keep implicating themselves, but it also tells you, I think, how. Far removed from reality there you know the CCP is always on about how they respect the sovereignty of other, ca- uh, of other countries, how they do not interfere in other countries, how they respect the international rule of law I mean all these things the fact that they write about this, seemingly thinking that these are okay that these are somehow evidence against safeguard defenders rather than against themselves uh, shows you really how how their mind works and how far removed from reality it sometimes is, if you will.
1: Well, the, the, the term brazen comes to my mind as, as you're describing this. You know, most of what we've talked about has been this, you know, quote unquote, voluntary return, right, which is, you know, basically through coercion, mm-hmm. but there's actually some examples of, you know, forced return. Mm-hmm. And I know you've covered that as well, Yeah. right?
0: Well, so we, we do consider these persuasion to return operations also forced returns, mm. right? It's, it's, it's coercion, um, and I think a lot of people can sympathize or empathize when you know, people are going after your family members. It's, it's one thing when they come for you, uh, which, well, obviously is, is very hard, but when they go after your family members, I think everybody can, can understand how that would be a very um, effective um, way of, of leveraging people, right? So so we do consider that a forced return, not voluntary, as, as, as they like to put it up. Um, but there's others, um, other systems, and, and we, again, base ourselves on what the CCP itself has been saying, what PRC authorities themselves have been saying. In particular, there is a written legal interpretation from the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection from 2018 which really outlines the methods that are being used. The first one is extradition. This obviously requires some cooperation from the country in which the target is. Has become increasingly difficult for the PRC to do, uh, especially within democracies, because of how the domestic system you know, is gravely violating basic human rights. Um, repatriation, which is when they use immigration law, right? So rather than have someone go through a judicial proceeding Uh, fighting extradition, they'll try to have someone deported. This is something we see happening a lot. For example, attempts or actually happening in Southeast Asia, so countries bordering China, but also we're very concerned about what's been happening a lot in the Middle East region. Um, and, And it's one of the reasons why we are so concerned about the cooperation agreements, judicial and police cooperation agreements, that they keep signing Uh, with uh, countries particularly in the global south because it kind of opens the doors to making all these procedures easier. But if those mechanisms are kind of cut off, which luckily more and more in democracies are being cut off, they move to the clandestine means, right, which start from persuasion to return, which is their vastly preferred method. Uh, Again, because it's easy to go after people when you're holding their family members hostage. But we also see luring and entrapment. So when they try to get people to another place from where it may be easier to repatriate them, for example, because that host country is willing to cooperate with China, entrapment when someone is traveling through another country and gets stuck. And Idris Hassan's case, an Uyghur man activist, is a good example. He's been stuck in Morocco now for two years. We were able to stop the extradition by appealing to the UN Committee Against Torture but he's kind of stuck in limbo. He's literally trapped in in Morocco, and there's been other cases, um, as such, in in the past. And then we get to the final method, which again is openly described, is written into stone by the supreme body in charge of these overseas operations, which is kidnapping. Now you have a regime that is openly writing down that it is engaging or that it is legitimate to engage in kidnapping to bring people back now they say themselves this you know isn't very irregular measure so not used too often only when the others are not um, available but again there is examples of those um, of kidnappings taking place and we've seen some taking place fairly recently just over summer for example in in, in Laos um, so yeah i yeah sometimes i'm like every time i I, i've read that legal interpretation so many times i've talked about it so many times but then every time i talk about it i'm still like stunned like how not only why would you do this but how brazen are you to actually write it down publish it for all to see and say hey these are the methods we are using and we think are legitimate but at the same time, we do not interfere in the affairs of other countries. We do not violate international law. I don't know. I'm still stunned.
1: Well, and I mean, part of I think part of the purpose of publishing that is so people know, mm-hmm. right? It's another fear fear tactic, I think. Right? Yes,
0: exactly. And and in fact, um, again, a bit like with the China Daily article. Um, a lot of times, when we've put out reports on, on, on these issues, or other organizations have published reports on these issues, um, you know, th- there's always a question that comes up during those regular press conferences that the foreign ministry does, right, where one of their friendly, controlled media's um, will will ask a question on on you know these horrible human rights groups saying blatant lies, um, and but the answer is usually. And after denouncing the blatant lies and how all these human rights organizations don't know anything, are just anti China forces and so on. But it usually always ends with a phrase, something along the lines of like a message to those overseas communities By the way, we can get to you wherever you are, we will get to you wherever you are, we will chase you until the end of the earth. And I'm not just inventing these words, these are literal words that you can find if you go back and scroll through some of these foreign affairs, regular press conferences, these are the exact words that you will find. And so it's very clear that they want that message, indeed, as you said, out to the overseas communities. And it it goes back to that patrol and persuade, that control element, like, be aware that we can get to you, we will get to you until the end of the Earth.
1: You know, and one of the things that really strikes me, I wanna mention this a bit, like I've become aware over the past few years, you know that I guess not all of us, I mean, we, we, we've talked about the, you know, you're, you're a very freedom-interested person. I'm also a very freedom-interested person. Not everybody's like that. Nobody has it in their bones like that. Okay. And so when you have these sorts of structures existing, that most people will just kind of, I guess, assimilate to that to some extent, right? And just kind of accept it as, oh, I guess this is just how it works. And, mm-hmm. There's a le- there's a level of power of having things just the knowledge that they exist there with these people, that I hadn't fully grasped.
0: Yeah, I think it's 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 definitely psychological pressure, right? Um, that that is there, and I don't know if it's true that that you know, not all people care as much about freedom. Maybe it's, you know, about their priorities. Maybe they have sure. to care about you know, their kids or or, or their family member, like. Sure. There's a lot of reasons why, why people would not necessarily want to stand up to it, right? And I think you know, during the hearing on the Hill, obviously, Rushan Abbas uh, was there of, of campaign for Uyghurs. Um, I mean, she's been a striking example of you know, transnational repression, of, of having these techniques used against her to shut her up, obviously starting from the enforced disappearance of her sister, Gulshan Abbas, uh, five years ago now. But which continues every day, not just by keeping her sister disappeared, but also obviously by harassment, threats, online discrediting campaigns, and so on. And I think she's made a very good point during the hearing, saying, you know, a couple of years ago, this would have happened, and the room behind us would have been filled with Uyghurs who are not necessarily like outspoken activists, right? But who wanted to be there to show their support, to you know, stand up for what they believe in, and. You know, she said they're not here now because they are scared. So I think, you know, maybe a lot of the time we don't see people standing up, we don't see people demonstrating because they are scared because there's that psychological pressure. And so maybe rather than suggesting or, or being a sign of those people not being enough freedom loving, I think it is potentially or worryingly a sign of how effective and increasingly effective the CCP's operations are and. On that note, actually, I think from a European perspective, it's been very interesting and something to think about maybe. You know, when, when we look at the Anglo-Saxon countries, and, and we know there's a lot that needs to be done. There's a lot of issues. But you know, we see outspoken activists, Hong Kongers, Chinese, Uyghurs, Tibetans. We see them you know, in Australia, Canada, the US, the UK. And they're very outspoken. And they're there. And they're not huge numbers, but they're there. But when you go to the European continent, for example, in the country I live in, in Italy, like until very recently, basically there was no known dissident in Italy. Yet we have one of the biggest Chinese overseas communities in the world. So the question was like, okay, like either, you know, these communities really are not producing any dissidents and, and you know, it's for some reasons all the dissidents go only to the Anglo Saxon countries, which would say something. Or maybe the control they've been able to establish here, also because of legitimacy, you know because of the fact that some of these community leaders you know have been cozying up to the local law enforcement and, and you know political establishment and so on, um, maybe the control is even more effective in those places right and so I think it's it's a bit of a different way to to look at it, it chicken and an egg question if you sure. want.
1: No, and I, and I and I think you raise a, a really really good point. That well, like maybe maybe not freedom loving, maybe freedom obsessed. No. <laughs> yes. That, well, that's, <laughs> maybe that would, yeah, be, a, that a, would a, a be a way a way to put it. But, but no. But in all seriousness, I mean, most people just want to live their lives, right? Which is okay. Yeah. Which is yeah. okay. And and and, and, you know. and 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 preferably free, I Pref- think. Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: let, let's say I'm, I'm fairly certain that most people would prefer leading their lives free from the potential threats and harassment of an authoritarian power that is keeping your family members hostage. I think it's a fair assumption to make that probably 100% of people would prefer to live that way. Um, and then, you know, within that space, if they want to, you know, talk about. The other crimes that the CCP is committing, or not, or other authoritarian um, regimes—you know—that's that's that's another question, and um, yes, not everyone's cup of tea, but right, yeah.
1: I mean, it's just more—it's more a reflection on how powerful these types of coercive tools can be, Mm -hmm. you know, on just normal normal people without without basically this sort of direct the direct enforcement cuz that's what you think of all the time right you don't yes. it's it's the the subtle stuff in some ways is the most insidious that's what i'm getting out of our chat here today
0: exactly yeah. I, I think it's it's both and 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 again it mimics a lot of what is happening inside china where you know a lot of the time you'll see them for example when it comes to human rights defenders right they'll go after one to kind of make an example out of that one person but you scare the wider community right you set a very clear example for all of them and Our senses you you have a bit of the same thing happening overseas where you set up a system of control where people know that the system is in place when needed you know there can be some examples that are being used and I mean the reason we learn about these cases is because Chinese propaganda is talking about them right because they want to send that message out to the communities
1: you know Laura this is such an important conversation Um, give me tons of Food for thought here a final thought as we finish
0: yeah i think thank you for having this conversation i think the important thing is to keep having this conversation you know if if some people are going through this um are are listening to this um and maybe hearing things that sound familiar to them um, you know know that they're not alone that there are people that want to support them and in particular we released a multilingual guide um, on what to do in cases of transnational repression, how to recognize it. It's available also in, Chi- in simplified Chinese, traditional Chinese, Uyghur, Tibetan, and English. Um, it kind of describes what the acts may be, but also lists some of the channels, reporting channels, where people can turn to to actually report such instances. Because if this is happening to you, this is not okay. OK. You should not accept this. We understand you may be scared, but there are in particular in the U.S., channels available to report it also anonymously. So if you feel scared for your family members, if you feel scared that you know this may lead to trouble for you, you can report anonymously. And it's really important that people do, because I think it's the best way, if people start coming forward talking about it, it's the best way to help the authorities in this country and other countries to actually gain a better understanding of what exactly is going on, who are the people doing it, who are the actors, what are the methods, and so on. So, you know, I think that's my final thought, really an appeal to potential victims um, for people that may have seen or known of other victims. Please come forward also anonymously and, you know, help us, help everyone to really better address this issue in the future.
1: Well, Laura Harth, it's such a pleasure to have had you on.
0: Thank you, Jan. It was great to be here.
1: Thank you all for joining Laura Harth and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. <music>